Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I am Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series about achieving balance in difficult times. The host for today's podcast is the dynamic Dr. E.J. Akinili, an extraordinary leader, and after graduating summa cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania and completing her emergency medicine residency, E.J. obtained a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School and more recently an MBA from the Wharton School. For Team Health, she's a regional medical director and a star. She'll introduce and interview Professor Zeke Hernandez. Thank you, E.J. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is E.J. Akonili. I'm a regional medical director with the Northeast Group at Team Health. It is my honor and privilege today to welcome Professor Zeke Hernandez to this podcast, Beyond Clinical Medicine. We will be talking about thriving in turbulent times such as this. Before I start, I'd like to introduce Professor Hernandez. Professor Zeke, as several of his former students know him as, is the Max and Bernice Gottschick Family Presidential Associate Professor with tenure at the Wharton School. He studies the globalization, innovation, and performance of firms. Professor Zeke has been selected as the winner of multiple awards, notably as an emerging scholar by three major academic bodies in his field of expertise. As a teacher, he has been recognized by Pruitts and Quants as a best 40 under 40 professor and received several teaching excellence awards. As one of his past students during my Wharton MBA program, I can testify to him being a phenomenal teacher. He teaches global strategy courses at Wharton to MBA programs with full-time executive and to all executives from around the world. Professor Zeke is a proud alumnus of the University of Minnesota from where he got his PhD in 2011 and also Brigham Young University where he received a BS and MS in accounting in 2006. He is also the proud father of five children. Please join me in welcoming Professor Zeke to this podcast. Welcome. Thank you. That's a kind introduction, EJ. So I have a couple of questions for you. So your expertise is in international business strategy with a research and teaching focus on managing business in turbulent environments. 2020 has been the very definition of turbulence. How have you navigated this year, both personally and professionally as a professor of strategy? Yeah, th thanks for asking about the personal side. I guess I'll, I'll give you a brief answer to that one. Uh, thankfully, you know, my family and I, we've been the fortunate ones uh, at that level. We're healthy, we're safe. We've kept our jobs and our income, which is a lot more than many, many people can say. So I think that keeping perspective on, on that, on the bigger picture, uh, on what we have to be thankful for has helped us cope with the, you know, I think the, the annoying disruptions of having to be isolated. And I think the things that, that everybody's facing. Um, at the professional level, I think we've um, we've adjusted. I think we you know well in academia. Um, I think that some of our research projects and teaching has been disrupted, but thanks to technology, we can do most of it. Um, so I think we're fairly uh, grateful to be in a sector uh, where where our day to day isn't too disrupted. 
Um, so luckily we're doing well, thank you. Resilience is a word that has been used to describe the healthcare landscape, especially this year. It's the ability to return to reliable functioning despite adversity. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this concept of resilience, which was something I studied with you as well, and how it manifests in this space? Yeah, so you know, I'm not a doctor, but I want to say, you know, since we're talking about healthcare and to people in the profession, that I first want to start by expressing my admiration for physicians and nurses and healthcare professions in general. I would say that as a profession, you might know more about resilience than most because you're actually trained to dive into situations that most people would avoid, right? Treating someone who is at risk of death, treating someone who's in pain. Most of us would walk away, would want to leave those situations and you're trained to walk right into them. So I think resilience is built into your training and you have lessons to teach the rest of us. So, you know, hats off for what you've done collectively for all of us during the pandemic. I think it's it's admirable and respectable, and, and there's probably not enough words for us to thank you for keeping us healthy. So uh, maybe you should be teaching the rest of us. Uh, now, you asked me a question, so I'll try to give you my best answer, but maybe that's the most important thing I can say. So as a, you know, now from the side of my profession as, as a professor of management and strategy, as I've prepared a bit for this and thought about resilience in the healthcare sector, I think of it at two levels from a sort of strategic perspective as someone who, you know, managing an organization, trying to meet its objectives. So I think there's a level of people, right? You have to manage people in a certain way. And that I think for healthcare organizations means keeping your, your professionals, the people, the staff updated on the latest knowledge and practices to treat patients during a pandemic, but also in maintaining morale and the human side during a horrific situation. And so I think that's where the intangibles of managing organizations come in and maintaining unity, maintaining esprit de corps, promoting a culture of support and caring among all staff members. I would say that without those soft things, those human aspects of an organization, it doesn't really matter what kind of strategy or organization you have. So I think that that's critical for leaders in healthcare. Uh, now, if we move to the level of the organization, I think resilience for an organization means uh, being able to function, but also being able to be responsive. And what that means is you have to have ways to provide flexibility and avoid things that make your organization rigid, because by definition, a turbulent situation is one where the landscape is, is changing, it's different, so you have to respond. So how is it that you do that in terms of maintaining flexibility and avoiding rigidity? So I think one of the most straightforward ways would be to shift away from things that involve fixed costs, long-term commitments for a little bit, um, right? And shifting toward variable costs that allow you to pivot closely. So what does that mean for healthcare firms? It, may, it means, you know, focusing on the supplies that you need, right? We know that PPE has been, of course, a serious challenge for you, particularly early on in the pandemic in this country. Uh, but then also having procedures in place where you have to handle an unusual influx of patients properly, right? That's going to require you to invest in some additional expenses that are variable, but not fixed. You're not going to build, you know, a new wing in the hospital. That would make no sense. And I say, I think another way that you maintain flexibility strategically as an organization is to rely a bit more on others, meaning other organizations, other, um, other firms in the community, 
and partner with them to accomplish important things, whether that's uh, obtaining certain resources, serving key constituents or patients. And the beauty of those partnerships is that they don't have to be designed to last forever. They might need to last for just a few months or maybe a year to get the equipment, resources, you know, to jointly serve patients if, if it's two hospitals partnering, uh, right? So all of the things that, that I'm saying have in common this ability to be flexible and responsive. Thank you, Professor. That was an excellent response. Um, as an add-on to that, um, Team Health has been probably read your memo before this, has been very flexible during this crisis, supplying PPE to its frontline providers, um, really pivoting on a dime um, to, to, to meet the changes of this unprecedented pandemic, um, producing state-of-the-art white papers to educate its frontline staff. So that, that's very germane to what we've done and what we plan to continue doing. So really appreciate that. But as a follow-up on this topic of resilience, there is the counter argument. I'm glad you mentioned how this is part of our training, what we do, we run into the burning building. But there is a sense that at some point, and we see it as we, we anticipate a second wave of a resilience fatigue. Like, do you have strategies and for increasing our resilience reserve, as it were, how do we do that? That's a terrific question. You know, I'm not too good at doing this myself, so I'm gonna give you some advice that's a little bit hypocritical because I need to listen to what I'm about to say. But I think that a lot of it has to do with going back to basics. And I think any healthcare professional will understand what I'm saying. Try to eat, sleep, and exercise, right? Take the time to be with your loved ones. Uh, if, uh, if spirituality is important to you, rely on those spiritual pillars in your life, uh, rely on the emotional pillars of your life, whether that's a friend or a professional that, that uh, you rely upon. All of those basic things of just taking care of yourself are really important. Now, it sounds obvious, but it's less obvious in a situation that feels like a constant emergency, right? Because an emergency, almost by definition, means that we justify putting off some of those things and focusing very intensely on you know the emergency at hand in this case treating the patient or dealing with you know some crisis to get equipment or whatever it is that a pandemic like this brings on and we do that for altruistic reasons we do it for the greater good no one more than healthcare professionals like yourselves so that's all right for a few weeks maybe for a few days maybe even for a few months but in the long run, if we're talking about many, many months, which is the situation that we're facing, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? It's a bit like the analogy of uh, when, you know, when they tell you on the airplane every time that, you know, first put the oxygen mask on yourself. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it makes sense for me to be treated by a doctor who is so exhausted and so emotionally unstable that they might make a dysfunctional decision. And so I think that the advice I would give to healthcare workers, but really to anyone who is experiencing this resilience fatigue is um, take time off if you can. I would say to leaders who are listening, give people time off, right? Even if, even if you're worried about uh, the quality of your care suffering a little bit, right? Think, think in the long run, having an exhausted workforce is, is going to be worse. Um, and then this is now more personal, not, and I'm not talking about strategy, but just as a human, I find it useful to just recognize that I'm suffering or that, you know, if you're suffering, name the emotions you're feeling, sort of own them, you know, accept that you're feeling them and put them out there for yourself and maybe someone that you love and trust to work through with you. Um, 
we're all struggling. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm one of the ones who's struggling the most, but I think all of us have had a bad year. I would imagine that someone who's seen the things that uh, healthcare professionals see even more. And so um, it just makes sense to take care of yourself, even if it takes some time away from the frontline work. Let us pivot to leadership as a fundamental piece of thriving in turbulent environments. What kind of leadership attributes do you find in leaders who can thrive in this environment or lead their teams to success in the face of unprecedented times? So I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I did think about this one ahead of time. Three things came to mind as I was preparing for this discussion with you, EJ. So the first one relates directly to what I just said about resilience fatigue. Um, I've always thought that the best leaders lead by example. And so a good leader knows how to take care of herself or himself so that they're strong. It's very hard to give if you don't have anything in your tank. And so I think a good leader is a good example of someone who knows when to pause and take care of themselves so that they have something to, to give to others. And um, I know from personal experience, uh, when I've been in leadership positions, that I have overexerted myself, and then it's very hard to be a leader. So I would think that's, that's a basic for the leaders. Um, now, speaking of leadership qualities themselves, I would think that particularly in a situation like this, um, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what is that, you know, killer quality that leaders should have now. And, and I keep coming back to something that we don't talk about enough, which is humility. So, and here, and here's why I think humility in leaders is really important. During turbulent situations, I think human nature leads us to two extreme but problematic reactions. So on one extreme is overconfidence, which comes from overestimating your abilities and underestimating the complexity of the situation. And the other extreme is fear, right? Fear comes from the opposite, underestimating your ability and overestimating the complexity of the situation. Now, these seem like curious extremes, overconfidence and fear, but what's interesting to me is that they have the same root, which is a sense of pride, right? It's the pride that you either need not change or learn, or the pride that you cannot change or learn. And both of them are a problem because they lead to paralysis. Right. And so think of leaders subject to these two extremes. They end up not doing anything, um, uh, anything that's actually useful. So why is humility the antidote to this? I think it's because humble people never feel like they know it all. So they don't have that extreme overconfidence. Um, and where does that overconfidence comes from in a leader? So think of a healthcare leader who might be uh, reliant too much on their past experience. Right or they may be relying too much on some epidemiological model, uh, too much on their you know, training that they got years ago, whatever it is, they over rely on that and they have overconfidence. But when you're facing a new situation, you can't, right? Because what you know isn't enough and it might be outdated. And in fact, you might need to unlearn some things. Uh, but then at the same time, humble people, they always feel like they can learn something new. So they avoid that fear of, uh, that extreme of fear and of feeling like, you know, I. Uh, I can't learn. The situation is too complicated, right? Humble people have the habit of always learning from others and from new situations. So you can look a situation in the eye as a leader if you're humble, not get paralyzed from it, and just accept that you're going to have incremental improvements little by little. You're going to figure out the situation, but you're also going to be confident in the things that you do know that work. If you want an example of this, I think Dr. Fauci has shown us all a really good example of humble leadership, right? He 
is confident about what he knows. He keeps repeating the basics that we know work. Um, and he's been willing to change his mind. And he's famous to say, look, it's not, it's not the model that tells us what to do, right? The epidemiological model is just the model. We have to look at the situation on the ground. I think that's a sense of humility of not over-relying on his scientific background or even his success with previous diseases that he's familiar with. So anyway, that's a long answer to say humility. I think that's a, a critical issue. And then I'll give you a shorter, a shorter one. The third one in my mind is communication. So communicating frequently, clearly, and at the strategic level. Uh, in turbulent times, the landscape is changing. So leaders need to be constantly updating their people on what they see and what they're thinking. And it doesn't mean that what you're thinking is always right. There can be uncertainty in what you're thinking, but just telling your people, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm thinking, here's my uncertainty about what I'm thinking. Just that communication is comforting. It, it allows people to trust you and follow you. Um, and also, since the situation is changing, <clears throat> tactical communication is less of a priority. That's what I mean by communicate strategically meaning communicate about what the goal is, why you have that goal, how you think you're gonna get there. And uh, you know the tactical issues are less important because they're gonna change anyway, given the situation. So to summarize, I would say, take care of yourself as a leader, be humble, communicate frequently, clearly, and at the strategic level. Those are three amazing takeaways. Take care of yourself as a leader, be humble and communicate strategically. So many of us need to hear that today, thank you. I'm going to move on to innovation. It's been discussed in details this year, whether as healthcare, as healthcare providers, we have innovated around service delivery models, care planning, information dissemination, patient care, you name it. Um, but how is this concept of innovation foundational to your past research and work uh, for surviving in turbulent environments? I know you've done research all over the world, really, and worked in turbulent economies. How has the notion of innovation come to play? Yes, I think what you're referring to is that I, I've spent time observing how uh, managers of firms in, in emerging markets that are very unstable, uh, how they cope and how they manage their organizations. And the reason I think innovation is, is essential is because if you think about it, by definition, turbulence, volatility, right, that, that instability, that's an indicator. It's a thermometer that existing approaches, institutions, ideas are just not working. They're not well adapted to the situation. So you're not gonna get different results by doing the same things as before. So it means that by definition, you have to innovate your way out of the situation somehow. And so that's why if you look to emerging markets that are unstable, that have volatile economies, you often see these very interesting and unique technological innovations or you know business models that you look at them and you think, well, this would never make sense in a very stable economy, but it seems to make a lot of sense in that in that setting. So, you know, in some ways, we're in a situation that is a bit like what these economies have faced more constantly, right? There's a lot of turbulence. Um, I think, you know, in healthcare, like you said, you've already demonstrated a lot of really remarkable innovations. Um, uh, I think of uh, telehealth as one where I, I've been impressed at the speed with which telehealth has sort of been adopted and and professionals have used it and uh, how it's you know been a, a great technology, I think that uh, you know a great innovation well not it's not a new innovation, but there's a lot of innovation in the delivery, right in the business model around that uh, during this pandemic. 
So yeah, I think your question about why it was foundational, I, I suppose that's the answer, right? The situation is changing, <laughs> you have to change. So the next question is on scenario planning. So, you know, just back to some of your points, we've been good at doing this, but now we're faced with a once in a century pandemic. So it's interesting. You can plan for a scenario where, you know, you're going to have more admissions on Monday, for example, but, you know, once in a century pandemic, it becomes more difficult to plan for the second wave or not knowing what that would look like. So what would your advice be as we, navigate uncharted waters and scenarios and do have to scenario plan for success. Yes, I think what you're referring to as scenario planning is uh, this term that um, has been around at least in business circles for a few decades now. It's just the idea that in your strategic planning, uh, there are scenarios that um, uh, you can anticipate or at least you can calculate the risk of the scenario, right? So, um, you know, some things you can quantify, you can even price risk in certain ways and, and get around it. But there's some things that are fundamentally uncertain. You just don't know. You can't put a number on the risk. Uh, and in, in that world of uncertainty, uh, what you can do, though, is try to Im imagine different plausible states of the world. Um, and that is a way to deal with uncertainty that can't be quantified or, or, or turned into risk and then priced in some way, if that, if that makes sense. So I think that first, I think I'll give you the depressing answer is that in some ways, the moment for scenario planning was, you know, last year um, it, for, as it turns out for the pandemic, right? And it, it's interesting because we have quite a bit of evidence that at least uh, the, the US as a country uh, had a scenario in mind uh, for several years and sort of that plan was thrown away. So that's why, you know, as a country, we're caught off guard and now we're dealing with the situation that we're in. Uh, now, that's the depressing part. Uh, the, the more hopeful part is that we can scenario plan at least around imagine states of how the pandemic will end, right? And how long it will take. So for example, I would imagine that any healthcare organization right now should be thinking about a short, medium and long-term recovery, um, right? And, and have different scenarios for those, those uh, timelines. I think that that's uh, not an unreasonable thing to think of. I think scenario planning for the geography of the disease is going to matter as well. Where is it going to end? Uh, you know, in what sequence? What are the locations that are most likely to end? I think that's reasonable scenario planning that can be done. And why does that matter? It goes back to, in some ways, where we started with the idea of at the strategic level, how do we deal with these uncertain times? depending on the scenarios in terms of the length of time and the locations during, you know, and, and how the pandemic is gonna unfold and finish, that's gonna tell you where you might need to avoid fixed costs versus go for more variable costs, as I was mentioning earlier. So that's why scenario planning is so important. Um, but yeah, I would say that that's where I see that scenario planning could still be relevant. Now, of course, when this is all over, I think then we have to, you know, take scenario planning for the next potential pandemic much more seriously than, than we did. And that's not the job of one, just one healthcare organization, but the whole healthcare system in, in the U.S. as a whole. Thank you. So this year has brought diversity and inclusion, inequalities and disparities into shock relief, in addition to the global pandemic. Um, team health has been very focused on improving diversity and inclusion within our organization, as have 
several healthcare organizations. I remember listening to you talk once about social entrepreneurship and bringing people, including people as part of the social fabric. How, what advice can you give healthcare leaders on this importance on these important social issues, even as we grapple with the changing landscape? Another good and difficult question. Uh, I'm going to start by saying something that, that isn't new, but at least it's important to restate so that healthcare professionals can think of the, the, the opportunity that you have. And what I mean by that is um, healthcare is the biggest sector of the economy in the United States. And the health area is one of those where there are very obvious and significant gaps and inequalities and accessibility and quality of care across people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, different races, et cetera. So um, I say that even though it's probably been said many times because you have a tremendous opportunity. I would say that if healthcare can move the needle on some of the inequalities that you're talking about, uh, society will be better, significantly better off than, you know, than a sector that represents a very small part of the economy. Now, in terms of advice, uh, you know, I have I learned long a long time ago not to try to make predictions because I'm always wrong. <laughs> but perhaps a few thoughts around your question. I think that as we think about entrepreneurship and going back to innovation, also innovation in the space of healthcare, uh, in as much as it has to do with, in, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion, th those themes that you're talking about, my sense is that we're more in need of entrepreneurship around business models in the way we deliver and do healthcare than entrepreneurship and innovation in the space of sort of uh, technical or technological innovations in healthcare. Now, lest I'm misunderstood, I'm not saying that it's not important to innovate in terms of medical devices or medicine or the way we, we treat diseases. Uh, but the point is that those technical innovations in the end, don't mean a lot if they don't reach a lot of people. Uh, and, and I think that to reach people, to have those technical innovations actually make the lives of people better, actually make our society better in a way that matters for everyone. Well, I think that's the territory of leaders and uh, finding business models, uh, ways to deliver healthcare in different ways than we have before. I think you know telemedicine is something I mentioned earlier. That you know that could be one. I don't. I'm not going to say that that's going to be the solution, but the opportunity to advance that right that makes medicine accessible to more people. Um, I'm thinking of uh, another side of inclusion in the profession is you know who gets to be a a doctor, a nurse, and a healthcare professional, right? That has to do with how we organize the way we train and recruit, uh, who we train and recruit. Uh, how we create pipelines of talent. I'm thinking of how hospitals are organized and how people are promoted within hospitals. You know, all of those things to me are business model innovations, uh, or if you don't like the term business because there's a lot of nonprofit interest in healthcare, just organizational models, institutional models that I think are gonna make much more of a difference in terms of accessibility, inclusion, and those things that you talked about than you know, a medical device that is 10% more efficient without underestimating the value of that. Um, I am an optimist though. I, I believe in the many smart people like you that are working in this space. Uh, so I think, I think that you and others will make a difference and I'm looking forward to see what you do. That was 
that was an amazing answer. Thank you. Thank you. So as I told you before we started, your audience is about 16,000 clinicians, um, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, CRNAs, and also administrators uh, working for Team Health with millions of patient encounters every day. It is said every three seconds, uh, a Team Health clinician sees a patient in the emergency um, department in the United States. And we have uh, practices all across this country to your point about reaching as many people as possible. So I wanted you to leave some final thoughts, some closing comments, maybe even explain Professor Zeke what a secret is and how that applies to us. <laughs> this is the question you've made me the most nervous about because I, I think of all the people listening to this. So perhaps the most important thought is thank you for what you do. Um, I often joke that uh, I'm glad I'm not a healthcare professional because I'm too scared or too chicken to do what you guys do. Uh, but it's it's only half of a joke. Uh, I think it takes uh, a certain wonderful kind of person to do what you do. So thank you, particularly in this context. Thank you, I think, from, from the bottom of my heart and, and I think from our society, you, you have kept us alive in the face of really difficult odds and difficult situations. So perhaps the most important thing I can leave you with is, um, you know, remember how important it is what you're doing right when when you when you do have that day off to think it's really important as as cliche as it sounds um now ej you talked about secret so you want me to say what that is well so this is actually a word that my students came up with uh, i sometimes like to take detours in my classes to just talk about uh life <laughs> not business just trying to be a good person and my students have called these secrets so I think what you're asking me to do is to share a secret with everybody. Is that right? That is correct. <laughs> okay. Okay. No pressure. Well, I have a class tomorrow with a group of students. And so I'll share with you what I was going to share with them, which is uh, just a, a, a story that impacted me when I was young. So uh, I've always been very interested in Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I can't explain why, but just in his life. And so one interesting episode from his life that has always stood out to me is that when Benjamin Franklin was returning from his first trip to London, he was on a ship for several weeks, um, he decided that he wanted to become a better person. So he created a system by which he would practice uh, one virtue every week. Um, and, you know, these virtues involve things like uh, temperance or humility that I mentioned earlier. And he would focus uh, one week uh, on, on a specific virtue. So uh, one of the things that I learned from, from that is that it's just as important to work on the kind of person we want to become as it is to work on, um, you know, other goals, whether it's goals having to do with our professional success or our income or other things that are more tangible. Um, so that's what I was going to share with my students is just a simple thought that, you know, as we have to be very deliberate about becoming better professionals, about uh, becoming wealthier, about, you know, lots of things, healthier, all the things that we set goals for, um, it's also a good idea to set goals for trying to be a better person as hard as that is. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but it's what came to mind because I had it fresh and ready for tomorrow. Thank you very much for the honor to interview you today and teaching us about thriving in turbulent times. It's been wonderful to get to talk to you. Thank you. It was a great honor to be with you. And thanks to all the healthcare professionals for what they do. 
Wow, that was wonderful. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Drs. Akunili and Hernandez. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for others, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. That's beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.